Market. The S&P, the ISX stocks. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special mailbag edition. I'm Scott Phillips, and with me, of course, is the doctor, Dr. Anirban Mahati. How are you, buddy? Good day, Captain. I'm very good. Mate, I should say, for those who don't know, you actually are a official doctor. You're a PhD in computer science, which is to the benefit of our members and our listeners because you know more, you've forgotten more stuff about tech than I know, mate. So uh, we're very happy to hear. So when I call you Doc, and when I mention you are Dr. Mahati, you literally are Dr. Mahati. So that's kind of cool. If you don't know that already about Doc, Firstly, thanks for listening and welcome to the podcast. And secondly, now you know. Now, maybe we had some great questions during the week, as we always do, and I will give the socials out at the end. But if you do want your question answered on the podcast, we love hearing from you because, as I've said semi-regularly, we kind of do this because, well, we think it's fun and we enjoy it and we love hearing from you. And if we're answering your questions, we figure that's more value to you than us just talking about stuff we think is important because... I'm, I'm pretty boring. Doc's interesting, but I'm boring. So if you let me choose the topics, you'll be in all sorts of trouble. If you ask the questions yourselves, you'll get a better quality podcast. Mate, with no further ado, let's get to a question from Robert. Robert emailed us. He says, Hi, Scott and Anirban. To start, I just want to say thanks to the whole full team in Australia. Thanks, Robert. It's very good. So I've been a member of many of your services over the past three years, and it has made a huge impact to my portfolio. Before Motley Fool, he says, I was making meagre returns and I mainly invested in blue chip companies. Over the past two years, my pro portfolio, Doc runs that one, has increased over 60%. I even sold a few companies in December 2018 at the trough of the market crash that were not part of Pro and increased my Pro portfolio holdings. This was a hard decision at the time, but has paid off tremendously. The December 2018 holdings I sold are now down 13%, while the Pro holdings I added are up 93%. As I said, thanks, Motley Fool. Rob, that's very kind. Thank you for those kind words, Doc. Runs the Pro portfolio with the team, and they do a spectacularly good job. And I'm glad you're doing well. We should say, as always, A, we didn't ask for that. So thank you, Rob, for volunteering it. And B, past performance is no guarantee. The legal eagles would love us to say that. And frankly, Doc, and I think that's important to say because we don't ever want people to think that short-term results can be uh, expected forever. We're not going to do 93% returns over uh, over 18 month periods in the future, I don't think. I was going to say that. Again, congratulations on the return. <laughs> and, and uh, you know, I love it when people have such good returns. It's good, isn't it? But... You know, I, the first one that said, don't expect 93% return next year. If you get it, be happy, Correct. but just don't expect it. Correct. But we will, and, and I should say the long-term performance, though, of over many years for Pro is, is actually really, really impressive. So uh, the guys are doing a fantastic job, but yeah, just, just keep that in mind. Uh, as it keeps the legal eagles happy. And frankly, we think it's actually just more honest to say that. We, we're not, you know, some people will go out there and say, look what we've done uh, and let you assume it's going to keep going. We'll say, you know, we've done this. We'll keep doing our best to do something like that, but we can't guarantee it. Anyway, Rob says, anyway, here's my question. At the moment, it seems that markets around the world are completely detached from the economy. For example, US GDP annualized growth is the worst since the Great Depression. Unemployment is still extremely high, but the S&P 500 is reaching all-time highs. The US market cap to GDP ratio, now that's known as the Buffett ratio in some circles, is around 170%. And he puts in brackets, Buffett says this is a concern when it's above 100%. Is this an indication that the US market, and therefore the ASX, is about to implode. Is the market still the best place to hold our hard-earned cash? Thanks again, and full on, Rob. Doc, I'm going to throw this one to you first, because I'm going to always give you the hard questions first, and then I try and copy what you say, so I sound smart. Uh, 
it's look, Rob or, is or right. Or is it that you know you can correct my mistakes? <laughs> never, so maybe never, that's what it is. Never. <laughs> so the, the the Buffett ratio is is a, a famously commented on metric, and Buffett for a long time has taken the value of the uh, U.S. market. I think it's the S and P five hundred. Could be the Dow. Either or. Uh, compares that to the size of U.S. GDP, and when the market is meaningfully higher than GDP. He says that you, know, you should be a little bit mindful, a little bit concerned about the valuations of stocks. When it's the other way around, in theory, stocks are cheap. That's a nice... He's never said you should only use that, but he has referred to it. Obviously, he didn't give it the term the Buffett ratio. That's been given by other people. Uh, but he has used it before to kind of imply relative valuation and relative attractiveness of stocks. Um, add, to, add to that Doc Rob's point about, look, the economy is not exactly in wonderful shape right now, and yet the market's assuming everything's wonderful. Is there a disconnect? Should we be concerned? What should Rob do? Well, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a, it's a, it's a very valid uh, and fantastic question to ask. Um, so, a couple of things. Like we we talk about this. We've talked about this before. One of the things I like to say is the the economy is not the market, and the market is not the economy. So true. Um, and it's actually for the U.S. Econ- U.S. stock market is even, I guess, truer than um, than say the ASX. And yep. the reason I say that is. The largest companies on the ASX, so if you think about or the, the banks, for example, they are reflection of one aspect of the national economy, which is lending, um, you know, uh, residential and commercial to some extent, right? Yep. The largest companies in the U.S. are international. Yep. They're a reflection of what is happening globally. So, so, so that's one difference. You know, again, you could say the mining is a reflection of what's happening in terms of international demand. So there's that. But that, I think that that's important one to realize and, and distinguish, but mm. overall. The second thing that I would say is that the Buffett ratio, while is important, I think maybe when it was formed, um, maybe I would modify that ratio to say, well, you know, we should probably think about market cap to the world GDP, mm. and that's probably a better indicator. And I guess the last thing I would say is that we don't invest necessarily in the market, right? So that's the third point. We don't. We don't necessarily invest in what the ASX or that, that's a benchmark that we think about yep. because that's probably, I mean, you know. That's we all alternative, need, right? Yeah, well, yeah. And we need we need some reference, right? Yep. I mean, we could pick any reference, but we're gonna, we could say we, we're going to use term deposit as a reference, right? Yeah, Why true. not? Uh, the cash rate as the reference. Yep. Uh, and that could be another reference. But that that's the industry standard reference. Yes. And, you know, we, we could invent one, but then people will argue with why we invented one. Uh, so we use the industry standard. And if you think about that, you don't have to invest in the market, right? So we are never investing in the market as a whole. We're investing in individual pieces of the market. And, um, you know, the one example I like giving is like, let's, let's you know, this is an easy example to give. Uh, sure, the world is in a lot of hurt. Uh, there's a lot of pain. Um, in just the re- recently reported quarter, Amazon had net sales of 90 billion US dollars. So actually a little bit more than that, or 96 or something like that. I forgot the number. That's more than one billion dollar in sales every day. Mm. That was up thirty seven percent. Clearly, right. you know yep. that, that's not hurting, right? And we have seen great numbers uh, from you know other companies. We have yep. seen great numbers from Kogan. We have seen actually great numbers from uh, uh, Coles and Woolies. Mm. So there are certain yes, things phenomenal numbers. Uh, phenomenal numbers. Right? We should put that on on Friday. Actually, that the, the retail sales in both those retailers are more than ten percent. Ten percent for so, groceries. From groceries. <laughs> so you know, like yeah. on the one hand, well, people are maybe not eating out as much and doing things. People are maybe yeah. eating in a lot more, and and so the, so I think. My point yep. really is there's all these opportunities. Yes, the world is not in a great shape, yep. but there are opportunities and you invest in individual companies. That's really my take. Can, can I, Can I? I have a separate answer I'll give, but I just want to kind of challenge or, or, or ask for clarification as your thoughts. So I, I agree with you entirely. 
we are, we agree we invest in companies all that kind of stuff that being said we have seen markets before and we it tends to be the case that even even with great companies their shares tend to get whacked and frankly also get inflated in line with general market expectations we know during the dot-com boom which now feels like a million years ago it probably almost was it was 20 years ago um you know air, you know microsoft stock which has subsequently been a spectacular company as a business let alone the share price it took 15 years post.com to actually make it make back its dot-com highs right so all those things you said were true but Microsoft at that point was arguably, or maybe if not arguably in hindsight, stupidly overvalued and took 15 years to recover to recover that price. If I'm, if I'm going to get inside Rob's head for a second, Rob, my apologies, mate, because I, um, I sure you don't want me in your head. But um, is, you know, he might be saying, or he might wonder, others might wonder, even if those are true, and you, I completely agree with you, Docker, as you well know, that we're investing in companies and, and not the market. We don't really care what happens to, to NAB and CBA. And if that drags the market down, who cares? But if there is some sense that, as kind of Robert implies, the market as a whole is is meaningfully overvalued, maybe even dramatically overvalued if you use the Buffett ratio. Um, won't it bring everything down if it comes down? And, and and therefore, isn't that a reasonable question to say, well, we don't invest in the market. If there are market-wide forces that will impact our shares, is that not something to at least think about? Yeah, I think it's something to think about. So, you know, there, there, there are so many moving pieces here, right? So there's mm. the interest rate, uh, which has an impact on discounting. Um, there, there, there's future growth potential. There's yeah, the yeah. Imp- impact of technology and how it is expanding markets. All of those things. So just in a general level, I think it doesn't appear to me that the, the market overall adjusting for rates mm. which yes, i would assume exactly. are going to be very low Huge, are, exactly. are in, in aggregate they don't pay super expensive they're not cheap mm. i don't think they're cheap yep. but i don't think they appear anywhere close to nasdaq yep. um you know 2000 levels right and I, sh- I should i should be clear i'm not i'm not implying that by the way i just want to yeah. use that as a as a benchmark to say that in some cases yeah. when it's even the best question. companies get yeah. bit up dramatically yeah, absolutely it can still take a while yeah so so there's that and uh, i guess the other thing i th- i think about is uh What's your alternative, right? I mean, mm. uh, you could try to time it. Mm. If you get the timing wrong, then you you know you pay a bunch of tax uh, now for the gains you've had, and then you try to get back in. Maybe you don't get mm. back in, and, and things like that. So, I mean, you know, the, the logically, in my mind, if you've got a growth company that can keep growing, unless the valuations are truly crazy, <laughs> just keep holding it. <laughs> yeah. Have some cash yeah. maybe that you can deploy if there is a pullback that yep. you makes you feel good that you... You know, are doing something when there's a pullback, just like just like Rob did, right? I mean, if yeah. you if you have the ability to do something when you know when everybody's running for the hill and you're able mm-hmm. able to attack, you know, when everybody's playing defense, you're playing attack. Yeah. Uh, 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 just psychologically can be very <laughs> powerful. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and I think that's that's one way to think about it. No, uh, so yeah. I like it, mate. I like it. I think, um, yeah, so look, I'll give my thoughts. You've nailed it as always, Doc, so I'll give a couple of thoughts. Um, Rob, I, I, my general rule uh, is if I disagree with Warren Buffett, I assume I'm wrong. Uh, that, that's, that's served me very well over the last you know, 20 years of investing. Uh, that being said, I think the one area I would disagree with, again, as Doc's already said, I think the numbers have morphed. I think we investors and, and commentators run the risk of or, or make the mistake of quoting old things that people have said and done people some people still t- t- treat warren buffett as if he just you know came out of the investing womb and was investing the same way he was in 1965 the buffett ratio i have said for a long time in fact my very first um job interview i was asked at the motley Fool. i was asked what i thought buffett was wrong about and my answer was the buffett ratio uh, and exactly for the reasons doc says there are more and more last time i 
checked, and this was a few years ago actually now, um, more than 45% of the US S&P 500 revenue came from overseas. So if you're comparing a national GDP number with an international stock market effectively, um, and, a, and a great, you know, again, if Buffett said those comments, it was probably the 70s, I guess, Doc, maybe early 80s. Um, the S&P was probably largely American. You know, the GEs, the GMs, the, uh, you know, the, the, the US oil drillers, the, you know, it, it would have been a largely domestic economy. Now, there would have been some international, of course, but the internationalization of the economy has has dramatically changed since then. So I'm not really sure if Buffett would hold to it. He may well. Um, if he does, I think it's, he's wrong, but I say that with trepidation. So I think that's the first thing. Um, second thing, mate, the markets are detached from the economy and they should be. Take you back to the GFC, right? During the GFC, global markets fell, sorry, global economies fell, what, 3% max stock, I think, some of the declines. There was probably a couple of countries that fell more than that. And yet the, the market fell 45% at the worst. Now, so, so we, it's funny, it's a funny thing about the human condition. None of us say, you know what? I think the stock market's detached from the economy. The, the stock market's down 45%, the economy's only down 3%. We say, oh, you know, the market should be down because the economy's down. That makes sense. And then when it recovers, we say, I wonder if maybe it's a symptom attached to you. And it's natural, right? Because we kind of, we, we tend to be concerned. We worry when things are going too well. We worry things might get worse. Um, in a way, we kind of don't worry the market's overreacting when it's down because we're like, oh man, it just feels so painful. And we're not wondering why it's not worse. So is the market attached from the economy? I don't think so. And I've said this before, I think on the podcast, if I haven't, let me do it now. The value of a share now now there are growth shares that won't be profitable for years and have cash flow for years and that's actually okay there are some that are unprofitable already now and some that are in between but any share price can only be worth the future value of its cash flows and even if that's i don't know doc what's the most outlandishly unprofitable highly priced business you can think of is it snowflake maybe um like i mean yeah what about tesla but so actually we'll use tesla because i want to give you a wrap here so five years ago tesla was losing a fortune in cash it was raising capital it was struggling to make money the value of its shares at that point were still the future value of its cash flows those cash flows weren't going to be knowable for sure they're estimated and guessed and predicted and people bought and sold shares on the basis of it for a very long time now the cash is starting to come in it was free cash flow was 1.4 billion no so, so for the trailing quarter uh yeah for the last 12 months is nearly two billion dollars us go. so two billion dollars trailing right so the future cash flows that were future cash flows then are now real cash flows and the, the value of Tesla shares then were, as always, the, or the, the company's worth, not that I was trading at, the market never gets it 100% right, but the shares were, at that point, should have been worth the value of all those future cash flows. Now, you can't always know, and so you've got to make guesstimates and, and guesses and allow for that stuff, and maybe you mark it down because of the risk and stuff. But generally, that's how, that's how they're valued, right? Now, if you think about that in an economic sense, we are probably in Australia out of a recession. Now, Doc made the point on Friday that just because we're out of a recession, you know, falling 20, growing one is not is not success. But um, we're probably out of recession already when the numbers come in. If not, it'll be next quarter. The economy is recovering. The future cash flows of, say, I'll use, you uh, believe is a bad example because it's doing well. What company can I use that's been down and coming back? Um, i trying to think. It's kind of a bit hard, isn't it? <laughs> what's, coming, what's, what's the other coming back? Um, so, like, uh, I don't know. I can't on the top of my head. I'll uh, use Webjet for fun. Okay, so yeah. Doc and I aren't necessarily aligned on Webjet's entire future or value. But in any case, you know, Webjet sales will stall. It's corporate travels. Like I own shares in both. Corporate travel sales are actually recovering, right? So corporate travel is a good one to yeah, use so, as an so, example. So sales fell. They fell meaningfully. Profits were negative. Cash flow was terrible. It was negative. That was all true. If you believe, and again, this is a bit of a speculation, but if you believe corporate travel survives and and gets back to some sort of normalcy in ten years' time. The future value of all corporate travels cash flows aren't just the 2020 sales, profits, or cash flow. It is 2020 plus 2021 plus 22 plus 23 all the way out to effectively infinity. Now, you've got to 
discount that back in the jargon for the time value of money. In other words, a dollar now is worth a lot more than a dollar in 2025 or a dollar 55. Um, but the, f- the future value of all those cash flows are what's counted. So if the economy is off a little bit, and it was, if corporate travel starts down a lot, and they were, but they come back, it, on, in the fullness of time, if corporate travel goes on to be successful, is it really worth 30, 40, 50% less today than it was a year ago? It shouldn't be if you believe that. And so there is some sense that once the economy's, uh, once the recovery is underway, the massive falls should be met with massive recoveries as we find our way back to just normalcy. So that's that, that's a long explanation, but it's really, really important to think about the future in not just this year's terms, i.e. the economy is down this year, therefore shares should be down this year. Um, easier example, if you knew a business were going to not make any money at all this year, just a hypothetical business, but I was going to make $100 this share from next year onwards, is it really worth nothing because it's making no money this year? And of course, we all say, no, of course not. It's worth something because next year is going to make some money. And that's exactly the story we're talking about. So uh, future value is super important. Is the market going to implode? Don't know. Could do? Absolutely. And this is this is where we've got to separate out sentiment from reality, right? There are no, I agree with Doc, there are no strong reasons to believe the economy is going to implode or the market's going to implode. Now, are there circumstances, black swans and other things that could create that? Of course. If you'd asked me that in February, I would have said the same thing. If you'd asked me on February 1, is the market about to implode? I would have said, not as far as I can tell. It's always possible, but I don't know. Turns out, February 19 was the beginning of a 35% fall, right? So it came to pass. Now, by the way, plenty of people were saying it in the middle of February, middle of March, don't buy shares, the pandemic's not over. And if you had listened to them rather than listen to us, you would have missed out on the recovery, which is also about 35% give or take. Now, the base of the difference, I was still below where we were, but broadly speaking, that's the success. That's the reason we keep investing regardless. So I back to Doc's point. I think if you believe in the long-term future of capitalism, unless you believe things are stupidly overvalued, even if the market did fall 30% tomorrow, I'd be happy owning today because I don't know what's coming. And so I won't look back and say I made a mistake on the 5th of November when we recorded this podcast, if I got it wrong, um, because over time, shares go up. And I think trying to avoid falls, Morgan Housel, a former full writer, has said, I think it's I think it's largely a, a, a guesstimate rather than actual research. So just be, be mindful of that. But he said he believes more money has been lost avoiding the next crash than in the next crash itself. In other words, the missed opportunities by getting out of the market compared to what you save or avoid by not being in the market during that crash, you tend to do worse avoiding the next crash than actually living through it. All right, that's probably enough, Doc, on that one. Anything to add? Nothing to add. Beautiful. Let's go to a question from Joseph. Joseph comes all the way to us from Italy, mate, I think. So we got Hungary, we got Italy. We're number one We've in Hungary the UK. number one in uh, Italy. We did have one of our listeners who was traveling, met guys from France. We should we should have a list somewhere. We've got some Kiwi listeners, I know that. I think so. We'll, we'll start to keep a tally. Uh, so feel free to let us know, by the way. If you're on Twitter, particularly, just because Doc and I are both there, hit us up and let us know which countries you're listening from, just for fun. Um, hashtag full overseas. There you go, if you want to. That way I can find them. Uh, but hit us up. Let us know where you're listening from. All right. Joseph says, greetings, Scott and Irban. Great podcast and services. I repeat, as I've written several times in the past. He says, I'm an active buyer uh, of EO recommendations and happily hold a couple of Scott's bit tamer recommendations as well. I'm sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Is he, is he having a... Is that a bit of a... Uh, I don't know. Like, I mean... Yeah. But, but, I mean, he holds them. So, you know, they must not be that tame, was, right? <laughs> Hopefully tame in a good way is all I'm hoping for. All right. <laughs> he says, and just a shout out to other listeners who aren't yet members. Just do it. There you go, straight from Joseph to you, listeners. I'm, I'm but the mere humble conduit. All right, Joseph, here's my question. While there's endless talk about the newer asset light business model companies 
many of which I own in my foolish portfolio, etc., etc., there is another, I'd argue, more nuanced description out there as well that considers off-balance sheet assets these companies need, such as stock options and stock payments. They're heavy investments in human capital that are integral to the success of their business model. In other words, these great companies I own that are often referred to as asset light actually are quite heavy. This is extremely so. Invest in a kind of asset that, is, that arbitrarily doesn't appear on their balance sheets. Given this insight, if you agree with it, what other factors, he asks, differentiate these companies from their traditionally asset-heavy predecessors? And can the doc, our resident expert in all things extreme, come up with a better moniker that captures the essence of their competitive advantage? Cheers, Joseph, your Italian-based foolish investor. And I love this question. I love the thought. I love the idea. He's, he's taken a, a just different perspective and angle on this one and said, you know what, isn't there a different way to think about these businesses? And, you know, I think, I mean, we all get caught up in definitional kind of pedantism at some point. They are capital light in the traditional sense of capital because capital is capital is capital. And it is, capital is by definition investments in permanent or semi-permanent assets that are very, very long lasting that are required to make things go and without them you can't start. You don't have to pay, you know, the Motley Fool doesn't pay my full rest of my career salary up front. So I'm not capital heavy in that sense. I am I am a recurring cost. Don't let the boss hear that. I'm, I'm a recurring value creator, put it that way. Um, but, you know, the, the idea of capital being an upfront cost for a fixed asset is real. And so I, I think Joseph is right. I think we should be careful about, you know, we don't want to re, redefine terms. But he's right to some sense that while they don't have the same sort of physical hard assets that we're used to, they have some really expensive and less stable, less less kind of locked in assets. You know, you, the machines are going to walk out tomorrow. But we've seen plenty of businesses where decent proportions of people have said, "You know what? I like it over there better." How do you think about that, mate? How, how would you respond to Joseph's question? Well, that's a fantastic question. I was just trying to think if they have a smart answer for that, which probably <laughs> I don't. Um, <clears throat> I think the only thing I can. St- I can think of off the top of my head. So it's asset light exactly in the traditional mm. sense, right? As a, what you pointed out. And, and that's real. Like we shouldn't we shouldn't try and uh, – not, not to have a go at Joseph. We shouldn't try and pretend that, that human assets that are paid by the hour or the day or the week or the year are the same as fixed assets in the same traditional sense. No, they're not. But, but at the same time, I mean, he's right to say that there is a big, uh, you know, sales and marketing line, right? right? Sales and marketing line. I think the and, – and there is like an R&D line. I think the key, I guess, difference is – um, so I'll just use software, software or any technology as an example. So suppose suppose you're a software company, or even if you make a you know a smart widget like say Nanosonics, which makes mm-hmm. these trophons, right? So there's some IP behind it. Yep. The people who develop this IP have developed it, yeah, and it's done. Yeah. Now there might be other people who are iterating over that IP to make it better yeah. over time. So once the IP is done, it's really a question of how quickly can you multiply. Mm. How quickly can you build yeah, widgets? Right, right. Uh, widgets still yeah, need some yeah, factory. But in yeah. the case of software, you just hit copy, yeah. or if it's in the cloud, you just create new instances and it goes. So there's yeah. there's some degree of leverage yeah. that's available that's not available in a traditional business model. Yeah. Um, so it's the asset once created can sort of has infinite lives. Yeah, the IP. Actually. So IP has infinite life in the or, or at least has. It can be scaled up yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. in an asset light fashion. Yeah, it's endlessly sellable. Yeah. E- endlessly yeah. sellable. So that it's maybe we shouldn't be talking about these are IP-heavy companies. That's number one. The number two, I think the other often less talked about impact mm. is if you are at the forefront of something, mm. 
right? Call Technology mm, A. Mm. You're going to likely attract the best um, minds yeah. for that thing. That in return makes your thing even better, which probably attracts all the other best best people. That you get. Yeah. So actually, yeah. the fight for um, there is a fight for capital. It's just a different type of capital, I guess, is what you know Joseph is talking about. The the capital that you're fighting for is actually human capital. So he's he's not incorrect because there's a finite supply of uh, great minds, right? Yeah. So if you want to find the best, uh, you know, machine learning engineer, mm-hmm. there are probably like few of them, right? Yeah. And they don't they can't be working in every company. Yeah. Um, so I think so I think that now the reverse of that is that's actually an untalked about or unrealized mm. um, strength. Mm. Right, it's a qualitative strength that you have to judge based on a bunch of different factors, mm. Mm. which is not judgeable via you know spreadsheets, not judgeable yeah, via yeah. numbers, not ju- judge. You can't come to a judgment immediately yep. as to yep. whether or not that impact is happening or not. Right. Mm. So, mm. Um, yeah. So I, I think so. There is human capital, but it can be an advantage. The human capital can be sustained. Mm. Human capital can attract other human capital, and then. You know, sort of the best of best. You know, there's a bit of a fly. Um, there's a there's a there's a, a flywheel that can be created there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so there are a couple of different things to think about, and I think that they're sort of orthogonal, but they're both really related. I think the last point he's talking about is the cost, which comes up. Uh, I'm not so worried about the cost. Like dilution mm-hmm. is. He's basically mm-hmm. hinting at dilution, stock dilution, or op- options based dilution. That is a real cost, mm-hmm. but. You should, when you're looking at fully diluted uh, results, I think you know if you're thinking about you know free cash flows on a fully diluted basis, then it's already accounted for. Mm. Um, so if you're getting growth with that dilution, that's still fine, mm. as long as you're getting growth and it's you know adequate amount of growth. But if you're not getting growth because you're diluting too much, yeah, then you've got a problem. I so let me drill into that because I, I was going to ask you that question actually before you went to the second point. So I'm glad you did the. The, the very, very best companies, the, the the highest tech, the most advanced, I think that's a fair point, right? And and the best techies in the world are going to go to those companies first. Let's assume there's only a handful of those globally. Let's say there's four or five um, in different aspects. Below that, how do you think about a company where – I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lower growth investor than you are. I value things like brands and markets and competitive advantages that are in some degrees physical or at least mental but in the mind of the customer rather than the employee. It wouldn't and you've talked before just with us about, you know, individual people who've left the senior VP role in one tech company to go to another company and do something else whether that's Apple to Tesla or Tesla or Apple or PayPal or you know, they, they, these people move around, right? And and they are in theory the best and the brightest, they're certainly well sought after. And they leave for the right reasons. As an investor, how do you think about that? I mean, I, I'm I like the fact that um, I'll use Coca Cola. I don't own the shares anymore, but Coke has a very obvious brand, right? And it doesn't have the growth prospects of, of any of the businesses we've just talked about. But equally, no matter how many people leave the Coke business, and even when they do things like New Coke and completely screw things up, it's still Coke, and people still come back to Coke. And you know, for those who don't know, the Co- New Coke was a new formula released in the early '80s um, that people universally hated. 
but the, the brand was so strong, it didn't matter. And it just kind of bounced back, right? It sucked for a little bit, bounced back and bigger and better than ever kind of stuff. And again, the growth's over. That's not an investment case, just as a, as a brand, it's an easier thing to look at. If I had to say, well, do I expect the people running Coke to be there in three years' time? And if the value is accreted by those people, um, to take a long-term approach on a, on a team that may go away and at the end there's nothing behind that, particularly where software is continually developed, right? The you can be at the forefront of software and then slowly just drift away because you're not you know you're no longer the best in the business or you know people go somewhere else or the, or the new talent goes somewhere else how do you think about that I, I i'm i can't quite get my head around trying to work out competitive advantages or the value of that or how long the growth runways are or how likely they are to be fulfilled again let's take the top group out let's take out to apple and tesla because if you're if you're a, if you're in self-driving and you're the guru there is nowhere else to work right so i get that but be below that level or in different industries how do you think about that bit yeah, so in, below that bit, I mean, yeah, so those people, you know, they will have good people, but not possibly not the great mm. people, right? Or they might have some very good people because they circumstantially wanted to be in that place for whatever reason, right? So, that, I mean, that's right. that's the reality. But most of these, <clears throat> if there's a, like, I don't know, like in many of these cases, you mm. would think about um, other aspects. So, for example, if you're making a software like, say, Zero, you would think about, well, is it sticky? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you would think about all the normal things that you're talking about. So, you, you know, you'd, you'd think about, you know, the stickiness, how quickly it can be replaced, what is the opportunity, you know, do they have other, you know, verticals or other right. directions in which they can grow, and just the pain point of changing things to something mm -hmm. else, right? Yeah. So, um, I think that's a very natural way to think about these things you'd often find that there's no one particular winner and you don't mm -hmm. need one particular winner. so you know you could have zero and intuit into it which is uh makes the quickbooks you could have both win and um and, and, you know when i say win i basically mean you know you can win certain markets they can win certain markets and every every shareholder can make money because there's value creation is happening yeah, yeah. right um so and so in some sense for uh, sort of you know below the absolute absolute cream uh, of the crop i mean you still have some of those dynamics in play uh, stickiness um how deeply integrated a software solution is in you know the life of an enterprise or the life of a user right and you know the problems they're solving the pain points they're addressing uh, usually companies that address pain points have uh have good propositions in terms of you know growing their market right if you address a pain point yeah. something is a big big problem then yeah. um you know making life easier yeah has has went so i i don't know like okay. i mean that's it's i think like cloud accounting right like if you think cloud accounting market there's zero myb intuit as you say and i kind of like at some at some level i'm thinking I guess at some point it goes from 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 tech expertise to brand anyway. Maybe that is the maybe that's the natural home or the natural endpoint of maybe some of these businesses. Microsoft arguably is probably that right. It's more brand than at least the office kind of software. It's more brand than it is genuinely breakthrough, cut through technology that or, or software that has anything particularly wonderful. It just has become the standard, and that is its own brand, its own its own competitive advantage. I just I just I you know. I, I, I try to look at a software business and, and try and work out whether um, the people, yeah, how important the people are versus the machine, the culture, the brand, the inherent code base, the the head start. Like it's it's hard. I find hard to break that down. Well, well, like I mean, the brand is important, right? I mean, the brand is important because that is 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 the saleability aspect. Mm. You know, there's a recognition that comes with the brand. The I almost think that in a good company, mm. um, everybody's replaceable. Mm. They should be replaceable because a good company should be creating bench bench strength, yeah. right? Um, 
so it's it's the ability to attract you know what is the bench strength right do you have people that can actually take over today right okay. uh for a certain role if somebody decides to leave and that is a sign of a good mm-hmm. company a good company would have bench strength yep. relative to its position in the market right you yep. have bench strength to replace people of the caliber that it needs yeah, yeah. i think um so yeah I, again and there's a little bit about i think in software you can sort of see uh there's sort of like an old school software versus a new school software you can sort of mm-hmm. see it okay um if if a company is taking an old code base and yeah. trying to turn it into a new code base <laughs> kind of doesn't work it's a bit clunky and you know yeah. somebody else can then come in and you know basically steal your lunch right yeah, so yeah. so that that sort of thing um it's <laughs> i guess it's a bunch of fuzzy things <laughs> Good question, Joseph. Thank you, mate. I, I, I certainly enjoyed hearing Jock's answer and uh, there, there are some thoughts for you, to, for you to run with from that. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Mate, question for Chris. Oh, I'm kidding. Chris starts with, please don't use my full name. So I'll just call you Chris. Um, hi, Fools. Love your work. The tips, are, by the way, Chris put at the very top of the tweet, which can I say, for, for someone who we do a little bit of prep for this podcast, but not all that much, that if you put it at the very bottom, I can't promise you I wouldn't accidentally trip over your, your name at the beginning. So if you don't want your name used, please let me know at the very, very top for, for your sake and for mine. All right. Chris says, hi, Fools. Love your work. Thank you, mate. The tips are good and the podcast is great. I like that. You know why I like that? Because... I recommend there's some market beating. So if, if, if that's just good and our podcast is great, then our podcast must be hugely market beating. I love that. And podcast is free. I, th- I think Chris is actually saying we have the best podcast in the country. But almost by the, if you if you take the extrapolation and say, you and I are beating the market with our respective services by a lot, and then past performance, no guarantee, blah, 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 but by a lot, if that's only good and this is great, what would the stock equivalent be? Like we're almost, we're almost Buffett-esque. Well, well, I think, we're, well, we're the Warren Buffett of podcasts. I well, think. you know, what I'm going to say is that Chris should give us a review. <laughs> because so on you know you should go there and just give us some good reviews because he thinks it's great you should write it it's just great thank you Chris please do that <laughs> <laughs> alright so uh, Scott's attitude has washed off on me I think he means that in a good way but I'm not sure and I have an optimistic attitude and a high tolerance to volatility good man unfortunately Due to a bad investment in a volatile marriage, that might be why you'd want me to use his surname. Good choice, Chris. I haven't. I have had to start again in life. I'm sorry to hear it, and haven't been a financial motley fool member now for over five years. But things are looking up, and I will be joining EO soon. Excellent, mate. Just wondering if you have some thoughts on WBT. It looks like it has a lot of potential to me. Thanks again for all the entertainment. Feel free to surprise us with three episodes a week, anytime you please. Keep up the great work, Chris. Now, Chris, I appreciate that. There will, as I said, I'm not entirely sure whether you've heard this by now. So, it, this might be old news or it might be new news. Um, the the uh, we have a, we have a, a special ep- extra episode, interview episode coming up. Also, I've organised one with one of our favourite companies, Doc. I'm not going to say too much yet because I've I've had verbal agreement with one of the executives from this company. Not that's an Australian company. Uh, coming up, hopefully the next week or so. So, there's a bit coming up. In any case, thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. Doc, I've never heard of WBT. It's Weebit Nano. Now, Weebit Nano, uh, it, it sounds randomly small. Um, I have to say, I looked at it. It's a $185 million market cap. This is not a tiny company. This is, it's probably one of the top five-ish hundred million com- uh, Australia-based by market caps. It's not tiny, even though the name is Weebit Nano. So, you like why I did that, like tiny and nano. And so, no? I'm getting, no, I'm getting nothing. All right. Um, do you know anything about Webit Nano? And if you do, what do you know about it? 
You know, I don't know much about Webit, and I'm actually just looking at it on their website. So Apparently, it's a technology business seeking to develop and commercialize its re-ram silicon oxide technology. So now you know. <laughs> now I know something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a big fan of silicon oxide technology, mate. It's um, sounds it, sounds very. F- I, I think it's probably. Is silicon oxide sand? Is that what silicon oxide is? Probably. I guess. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> we apologise, Chris. We don't know anything about Webit Nano, mate. And rather than make stuff up, which we could do, others probably also do, we're not going to. Um, it's, had some, it's had some decent success in, in recent times, at least share price-wise, whether that's enough. Um, open question, but it's done spectacular over the last year or so. I said $185 million company. We will have a look, Chris, at Webit Nano. No promises. Um, we don't generally tend to take individual stock requests on the podcast because it's just super, super um, boring for everyone who doesn't like or care about Webit Nano. So we won't spend a lot of time on it. Um, but if there's anything kind of fascinating, we'll bring it to you next week. How's that? Is that fair, Doc? That sounds very fair to me. There you go. Thanks, Chris. Really appreciate it, mate. And uh, sorry to hear you've been through tough times, buddy, but hopefully things start to improve pretty quickly uh, and you're back on your feet. And of course, hopefully you're back as a financial member of Motley Fool because we'll try and make you some money on the way through. All right, one from Dave. Doc, this is a really cool one, by the way. like this question. Hi, Legends, he says. Loving the show. Thank you, mate. I'm currently reading Tom and David Gardner's original book, The Motley Fool Investment Guide. Now, Tom and David Gardner are our co-founders, brothers who started The Motley Fool back in 1993, and they wrote a book. Was it, would it have been late 90s, I think? Called The Motley Fool Investment Guide. There's an updated oh, there version go. to that, actually. So funnily enough, Dave then says the book was originally written in 1997. <laughs> so I'm sure some of their investment philosophies have changed since then. There is an updated version. You're right, mate. He says, however, I would be interested to hear your thoughts on their take on the Dow dividend strategy, which they said could return approximately 20% per annum. He says, wow, sign me up. And then he says, if you and Doc had to pick a strategy outside your own, what would be your top pick in today's markets? I like that. And his hashtag is possibly the longest hashtag we've ever had. Uh, Doc and Scott's Australian Guide to Investment Book 2021. So there you, go. <laughs> there you go. I think it's a book request. We won't be writing that book, Doc, will we? You will write it. <laughs> <laughs> I'll watch from the sidelines. That's, uh, that, well, mate, you don't want me describing your investment strategy. It's not going to work particularly well. If we, if we do, I'll let you do your section on yours at least. All right. So let's assume we're not going to do that, Dave, but thank you for the suggestion. Um, Dow dividend strategy they've, they've walked away from, I think it's fair to say, mate. I don't, I don't think, it's, I a, think so. it's not a current monthly full strategy. So, yes. uh, Dave, I don't actually know the full details. We did have a dogs of the Dow strategy at one point as well. The monthly full kind of started um, as an investment newsletter and the – what I, you know what I like about The Fool's evolution? And it probably is, it's hard in a book. I guess that's the beauty of the internet, right? In a book, you kind of do something at a point in time and say, this is what I think right now. Uh, for a whole lot of reasons, uh, things don't work out. And I think, you know, I, I'm actually, I'm dead sure without even speaking to them that both Tom and David would happily say, we walk away from stuff that doesn't work. We change our minds when, when we see better ideas. Tom himself has gone from being a large cap cash first investor to a more growthy investor over the last 20 years as well. So, you know, people, people change as they find better and newer and different ideas. And I think that's, that should be applauded. Um, I say that not just to, to, to curry favour with the bosses, though, hey, Tom and Dave, if you're listening, no, they're not, they're not listening. Um, but, but if they were, if they were, if, if someone ever sends them this link, uh, I love you guys. Um, the, yeah, I, I, I moved away from that one, it's fair to say. Uh, but I liked Dave's question, mate. If you had to choose a strategy that wasn't your own, what would you do? Well, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd pick... Uh Maybe, this, I'm, maybe I'm cheating. I, I just picked David Gardner's. <laughs> no, uh, oh, no, no, uh, no, no, no. You're uh, not getting away with that. <laughs> uh, so I, I was just to pick, you know, uh, you, um, and he has a very, very, very interesting line, which I really like, um, which is you buy excellence, <laughs> you add to excellence, 
and you sell mediocrity. You don't. You don't get to, to use someone and else's strategy. You call it your own, and then call it theirs, and say. Oh, well, like it's it. just I do my strategy is just to copy the best strategy <laughs> <laughs> that exists, right? And there's a simple strategy that explains everything. You know, buy excellence, add to excellence, and just sell mediocrity. You don't think I'm going to let you get away with that, do you? Really? Uh, that's the strategy. <laughs> that's the only strategy I I, I can uh, other, think other of. Other investors out there, you look at and you go, it's not my thing, but I kind of I like it or I appreciate it or I respect what those guys are doing or that you know. Is there anything you kind of look at and go, if I was a different investor, I might try that? You know, in my mind, there, there is like there is no better strategy than just buying excellence. You should just buy excellence. And be done with it. Dave, it's, I'm trying very hard here, but Doc is not helping me it's at just, all. You know, and if David is listening, then, you know, I, maybe I get extra bickies from David. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, the, he's not, he's not, Doc, he's not listening. He's not listening. He's so definitely, it's not, it's he's not, got way better things it, to do. It, it, it's not helping. But, you know, like, honestly, I, I actually, you know, this sounds very simple. It's extremely hard to execute yeah. on buy excellence, add to excellence, and sell mediocrity. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I love that. It's, it's, it's my motto. Is I keep reminding myself every day. That's what you need to do. Oh dear! So you're not going to answer the question. That's, that, the answer. That, that's, that's the that's answer. That's the answer. That's not an answer. That's a cop out. Come on, dude. That's that's the best answer that exists. <laughs> but if you're going to do something else, was the question. If you're going to do something, what's what's the what's the next? What, what's the what's the second or the the the, the least bad alternative mm. to that? <laughs> Let, let's, let's assume you're right. Let's assume Dave is right. Mm. The, the question from from Dave is: Let's go to the next one in the list. Anything? Uh, can you give me anything at all? I'm working hard here, Dave. So, so, yeah, so here, here th- there is an opportunity. Like, I mean, th- this is super hard work. So mm. if you fish in uh, in a pond, it, again, this is like you know, sort of what we do, but mm-hmm. uh, if you fish in a pond, which has got a lot of stuff that people generally don't look at, yeah. you can find stuff that, is mispriced and i think yep. that sort of strategy mm. this this is sort of what the best um small micro cap investors do um and you can get good returns i think it's you know the the flip side you get good returns but you're taking higher risk uh is something that people need to realize that you yeah. get higher returns but you're taking higher risk yep. i think david's strategy is higher returns and lower risk so yeah. i think that's that's the difference between the two I would, yeah, I, I will say one thing, mate, just to, to clarify, I have no issues with David's strategy. I think on a stock by stock level, it's high returns and high risk. I think the way the strategy empl- employed makes it lower risk across the portfolio. And I think you would agree with that, but I just want to be really, really clear that we're not saying if you bought a single one, I mean, David himself says he's got the, the worst strike, strike rate of anyone in the, the Motley Fool. So just to be super, super clear, the strategy works because as a portfolio approach, Highly, a very diversified portfolio approach. It works. Is that is that fair to say? Just to, just to avoid misleading anyone. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you know. Again, you know, the, yeah, the strike rate would be lower with even with, with David's strategy. Um, I, I mean, if, if you apply David's strategy and yeah. you were to very selectively apply it, maybe you can actually improve your strike rate. But, um, but yeah, like the strike yeah. rate with that strategy is going to be maybe somewhere on the fifty percent rate. I think the strike yeah. rate with with sort of you know. With looking for small cap, if micro cap value yeah, opportunities yeah. is also going to be low. Totally, but I think r- relatively. I think putting the two side by side, yeah. I think you know you can get good returns with both. I think one is just going to be a slightly higher risk, just by by value by virtue of uh, size constraints. Yeah, I think it's fair. I think it's fair. Mate, I will, Dave. I will, I will not try and avoid the question like Doc. I will give you a fair answer because I do this thing. Um, so look, I don't. I, I, ironically enough, I probably have the least defined strategy. Of, is it? Probably not anyone at the Motley Fool, but certainly a few people. Um, 
at, at our service, we've picked everything from uh, fast-growing medical device technology businesses through to turnarounds. We, we had Channel Nine Nine Entertainment as a recommendation at one point. Um, we've, we've kind of we've kind of been all over the place, and we do that deliberately. We try and fish where the fish are, not try and hold to a single strategy. And that's not to say that single strategies don't, don't work. If you if you you know you need to be I was going to say you'd be really good to do it. I'm not, I don't want to give myself a rap here. You just need to be really careful that you don't, you know, try and be jack of all trades, master of none. So if you can find enough companies to do a really concentrated strategy that's really successful really well, you should do that. For Share Advisor, we've got a limited pool of universe companies. They generally to be mid and large caps. And so we have to kind of try and look a little bit more broadly for different um Definitions or, or, or experiences of value, examples of value, probably a better way to put it. So we do kind of fish a little bit all over the place. I am, I, am, I if I had to start again, if you said to me, you can't do what you do. So generally I would I would call what we do long-term business-focused investing, which is really broad, but it actually really works. And I, I will say for what it's worth, just because people listening and you ask the question, the Motley Fool's success has been phenomenal, Doc. I think it's fair to say, and without over-promising, we have a lot of different strategies, a lot of different mandates in our services and the vast vast bulk of them are making money and almost all the ones that are making money are beating the market and that's not nothing right like i want to be i want to kind of make that point because again i'm not trying to you know big note our company but if you can take people like doc who do super you know growthy tech small cap investing and a business like a service like share advisor that's done mid large cap kind of you know uh combinations of everything and then you take uh we've got a hidden gems service We've got a, a service called Million Dollar Portfolio that buys uh, companies from share advisor and dividend investor and extreme opportunities and puts them in a portfolio. Uh, we've got Motley Fool Pro that Doc runs. You know, so many different services that are, you know, they're not, they're not super, they're not opposite to each other by any stretch. We don't do any technical trading, for example, but different approaches, different people with no house view on these stocks. Um, and the services almost universally are, are doing really well. So there's something to that long-term business-focused investing that actually does belie the simplicity of it. So there's that. Um, if you said I couldn't do that um, and I had to try and make something different I think I mentioned on Friday I would be a little bit interested in turnaround investing um, if I took a basket approach and, and found stuff that was either beaten down out of favour because of one-off issues or cyclical stuff if I, if I was a bit more active to Doc's point I was you know, looking for the best Turnaroundy kind of opportunities. I probably would go there. I think next. Um, now I'm 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 lazy. I don't, I don't want to sell and buy a lot. I want to try and do the work. I want to try and get the right companies. I want to hang on to them and let them do their thing. Right. That's what I do. Um, part partly informed by the Motley Fool's ethos. Partly because I'm lazy. So there's that. Um, but broadly, you know, I think if you want to be more active, to Doc's point, that's what I'd probably look for. I'd probably look for turnarounds or cyclical opportunities, stuff that's beaten down out of favour. You got to be a little bit careful. I don't mean dirty value necessarily here. So I'm not saying I'm not saying go back to value. Value has underperformed for a long time. Um, but individual companies, if you had a basket of them, I think, you know, playing resource companies when the commodities were super low um, has generally been a decent way to go. Not foolproof at any stretch. I'm not suggesting you should do this. Uh, and also, look, if you're asking me, I'm saying, hey, you know, do what we do. <laughs> but if you, if you make me abandon the long-term business focused investing and go somewhere else, I think I'd probably play the turnaround or cyclical baskets. Anything else on that, Doc? Any more thoughts? No, I have nothing to add. That's, that's, that's a brilliant answer. I wouldn't say that, but it's an answer. All right, let's get to a question from Jen. Uh, now, Jen, you, you're probably one of my favorite correspondents. You're definitely one of my favorite correspondents from today's mailbag, as well as the others, because um, I don't play favorites. You know me, Doc. All right, Jen says, Hi, Scott and Doc. I've got a... Oh, so Doc and Scott. I have another question for your, in caps, super special mailbag. And then normal caps show. So thank you, Jen. I appreciate you. Appreciate- Doc, I just appreciate the specialness of this, I don't think. I, I, I try and make the point every Sunday, and I don't really get enough 
enough joy from you, Doc. I don't feel like you're really on board with the, the specialness of the mailbag. Well, I, I think the mailbag is special. It's, it's regular, though. I want to make a point that it is regular. You know, I, I, <laughs> special to me implies it may not be there next week. It may not. Well, in my mind, it's always there. But like, I mean, be. without the mailbag, the, the podcast is nothing. like... You say we're nothing? It's lost half its soul. Oh, okay. So, okay. so you have to... Well, it, something that's worth half a soul has got to be special, surely. Well, but, but <laughs> so what did they? Yeah, I, I, I can't. Fine, it's special. Let's get back to Whatever. That. Let's get. Let's go. <laughs> I lost Jen, that one. Jensen, no, not really. I, Jensen, I have a teenage boy who loves gaming. Man, don't they all? He also has a want for a new computer, and she gives me the uh, the face palm uh, emoji. Uh, Jen, you've 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 your guts are using emojis with me because the only emojis I use are the colon and the bracket. That's just kind of you know the text smile thing. I'm not really an emoji kind of guy. Anyway, Jen says he has 800 bucks in the bank in the bank account, giving him not so good bank interest. And then she has the frowny emoji with the swear word kind of thing over the face. So if you know that one, then that's what Jen's doing for me. Does make great radio, does it? But we're doing our best. Anyway, she says I have bought him 50 shares in my name in the ETF ESPO. Now I think I know that's the esports ETF, Doc. Is that right? I actually am just realizing that there is an esports ETF. Yeah, right now. yeah. So Andrew Leggett, one of our colleagues, has been keeping an eye on this one. I, Jen says I'm wondering if either of you have or know of any other ETFs that are available. Trying to teach him about investing and in things like you and uh, things you like and understand. So we like that, Jen. And then she finishes, hey, hashtag, get Doc on Insta. He still isn't there. And two little laughing emojis. So thank you, Jen. Thank you for the emojis. I appreciate it. I'm not so good with them, but thank you for uh, thank you for making the effort and trusting me to understand what they are. I think I got there. Um, all right, so this is eSports. I, I, I'm a huge fan when you're trying to teach kids about investing. You're not trying to necessarily maximize their returns yet. Uh, you can do that, but if you if you just want to get, kind of help them understand what it means to own businesses, owning shares and stuff they know, use, and love is a super cool way to do it because it just creates that connection. So, Jen, I'm a huge fan of what you're doing. Well done. She started with the esports ETF, but she wants to know if there's any other ETFs that are available when things that he likes and understands. What would you suggest, mate? Nasdaq 100. Nasdaq 100. Tell me why. Well, well, tell Jen why more to the point. Well, Jen, it's got all the things you might like. He wants a computer. Maybe he wants an Apple computer. No, maybe, sure Maybe not. he wants a MacBook Pro. Maybe he wants an uh, iPad or an iPad Pro. Surely uh, not. You know, if you want any of those. Or maybe a new <laughs> iPhone. Uh, if, if you want any of those things, an Apple Watch. Mate, we're trying to get some advertising for this podcast, and you're pretty much basically saying to the people at Apple Australia, don't worry about it, I've got you covered, guys. What you got? I mean, you know, like I'm just talking about good products, not advertising it. I hold some shares, but I mean, nobody's paying me a commission here. But I well, mean, they won't if you keep doing it for free, mate. Come on. Or, or like, if, or, or for example, if you want to search using Bing, then, you, then you're using Microsoft. Um, so there's that. Uh, I, I guarantee you, he's not using Bing to search. Can I well, tell you? But he could. I can right? guarantee. Like, I do use Bing for search. You do. So, so there's else that. Does. Or if you're, you know, like I mean, if he's wasting his time on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> You know, like all his time gone, uh, then he's probably using Google. There so there's go. that. So, 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 you know, so <laughs> there's just some small reasons. Yeah. Uh, what else did I forget? Yep. Uh, oh, and if he's buying stuff online, so he's got 800 bucks and he can buy all that stuff online. Maybe yeah. he's buying stuff from Amazon. I'm tipping Jen probably has a family Netflix account. Yeah. So that's going to help. Netflix is on also on the NASDAQ. Oh, Netflix is there too. So, net, yeah. And I'm tipping Jen and her son have got Facebook accounts uh, Instagram yeah, well Jen uh, sent me the question on Instagram so yeah. I know that for sure so she's using Instagram she is 
Yeah. So, I mean, that's plenty of reasons yeah. and many more. Uh, that you, I think you get uh, Pepsi as well in oh, Nasdaq. <laughs> <laughs> Don't drink Pepsi, drink Coke. Other than that, I agree. Pepsi is there. <laughs> I don't think Coke is there, but, you know, yes, it's got a great collection of 100 yeah. companies. Yeah. Um, actually, there might be some overlap with the the esports ETF as well, be, yeah. uh, because the esports ETF's largest holding apparently is Nvidia. Yes, and I would, I'm guessing, I don't know off the top of my head, Nvidia is probably a holding in Nasdaq 100 as well. So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So that's a good one. Very uh, good, Matt. Know, I like that one. I like that, uh, Jen. As I said, I love the approach you're taking, Matt. I think it's a spectacularly great way to get kids involved in investing. Um, uh, you know, we are tempted to try and maximise their returns, and I think there's a lot of value in that. But I think. It's your teach a man to fish thing, right? You can maximize his returns and not really help him learn to invest or you can actually help him on the on the journey. I wouldn't run away from non-tech stuff, honestly, either if you wanted to kind of, you, you know your son best, right? But if you think about like a an ASX ETF or a US or international ETF as well, um, I agree with Doc, by the way, and I, I think I, I certainly own shares in the NASDAQ or units in the NASDAQ ETF, so I'm a, I'm a big fan of that one. Uh, but you might look grab, grab a global ETF or a local one if you want to do things. And if he's interested in things like maybe he's got a Telstra account, maybe he's got uh, Woolies, yeah, maybe shop at Woolies or Coles, uh, probably shop at Bunnings. Those businesses as well are all listed on the ASX or somewhere. Uh, maybe use Colgate toothpaste or Johnson and Johnson. Maybe you, your, your cleaning products are made by a US company. So I think to the extent he's interested, uh, I think ETF. I think it's really smart buying an ETF, mate, because it's a really simple way to grab a whole basket. With, with a relatively small number of shares and relatively small amount of brokerage to really give him very broad exposure. And the more you can say, hey, we're making some money doing this stuff, I think is super, super useful. So love that idea. I think tech is right. You're dead right. He loves his, loves his, uh, loves his new, what's new computer, loves his games. Uh, I think that's a, it's a great, great way to do it. Just, just think about how you might otherwise add to that if you're looking for other ETFs. All right. And of course, Doc, you need to be on Insta. I need to be? You do. Well, be nice if you would. I don't know. I, Do it for Jen. I'll consider. I'll consider just for Jen. You won't really, will you? Uh, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> Mate, we had a, a bit of feedback. This is a question. This is a feedback from Blonde Horizons. Um, you might remember last week we had a question uh, and, and she said, look, if you if you answer my question, I will join Share Advisor." And I have to say, I did say at the time and I also said by um, by re- return message, look, please don't, please don't do that because um, we're answering your question. We'll answer the question regardless. But if you want to, feel free. Uh, and I was pretty pretty stoked that she sent through a, a screenshot, uh, which at the top says, thank you for joining Motley Fool Australia and has the, the payment details on there. So Blonde Horizons, thank you for joining us at Motley Fool Share Advisor. We appreciate that. She says, boom, looking forward to your intel, especially on the NASDAQ. So we're trying to continue to do that. So but, well done but, and thank you. What about you? I'm, like, I'm, just like, well, I'm just like feeling left out here. <laughs> Come on, I mean, you get plenty of love for everybody so far. This mailbag sort of, yeah. But, but, but still, other, like, other than one bloke who bought my tame recommendations, you're getting, <sighs> you're not just, sort of love you know, around I'm just here. Like, I'm just feeling like, okay, I just got now, left. Now you know how I normally feel. <laughs> Come on. Okay, fine. But I, but I, I'll, I'll live, I'll live. It's okay. I'll for live. what it's worth, I have mentioned maybe that uh, your service is inexpensive and our listeners, including very inexpensive inexpensive I'm having a hard time saying that <laughs> in any word as I said I, I, we never ever expect you we, this is ne- there's never quid pro quo uh, if there's any quid pro quo by the way we just like to say compliments compliments really more than joining but if you do if you do like the answer or you do want to join the services thank you we, we do appreciate it alright question from Michael Michael says hi Scotty love your work was looking for an email to send questions to your mailbag couldn't find it so I thought I'd send you a PM and I thought that would work just as well it does I got it. Thank you, Michael. It is interesting that not many Aussie blokes speak as quickly as you do. Not sure if you've realized this. I have been told that, Michael. It's one of those weird things, Doc. I don't 
I have no ability to remember to control the speed of my speaking. Well, the, the good news is that your speed of speaking can yeah. be controlled when it's on the, uh, <laughs> you know, that. on the podcast, right? There is we that. can speed you up. We can slow you down. <laughs> there is so that. technology to the rescue. There you can go. speak Problem any way solved. you want. <laughs> Problem, Problem solved. solved. <laughs> I apologize, Michael, and thank you for calling me on it. You're dead right. I, uh, you know what? Here's, here's a bit of inside baseball. The top of our script, every well, it's not really a script. It's a list of talking points. Um, the things that we're going to talk about. I write, speak slowly in big capital letters and I do it for the first 15 seconds then completely forget when I get carried away with our subject matter. So there you go, mate. Thank you. Uh, He says, uh, you're like a natural fast forward at one and a half times speed, sometimes at two times speed. I like it. He says, otherwise your podcast would be 90 minutes long instead. There is that. So actually saving our listeners some time, Doc. You're welcome, listeners. Michael has a question. He says, I have a question about the number of shareholdings one should have. I know you guys say it would be recommended to own at least a minimum number of 15 companies for diversification. But is there a maximum that would make it go against you instead? What I mean is if I own too many companies, the value in each might be spread too thinly. And even if they do 10 bag, it's not going to be life-changing. I have a problem of wanting to buy everything. That's when people are not happy about re-recommendations. I, on the other hand, was happy as it means I can just top up my existing companies. I subscribe to three of your premium services, and it's Cloud Disruptors, Shooting Stars, and 5G, as well as Share Advisor, EO, and DI. Mate, thank you for being a member. We appreciate it. When the Rex overlap, he says, I take out his extra conviction. That's fair. I know some people weren't pleased when uh, Shooting Stars had many overlaps. Again, I was all smiles because it means I didn't have to increase my number of companies. I have around 100 companies, he says, 50 on the ASX and 50 in the US. Should I just look at the worst performer and sell out? and top up on the winners instead. And then he says, <laughs> quotes, when in doubt, look at Netflix, close quote. It had a period of no growth, dropped significantly and also expand, increased exponentially. If investors were to sell in the early years, they would have missed out on the monster gains. This is stopping me from selling anything. Thanks, Michael. I get that thought, Doc. That's the whole idea of like, you know, should I sell stock X is a, is a kind of a worthwhile question. But if that stock had been Netflix, five, seven years ago, that would have been an expensive worst stock to sell at that point in time. So Michael's obviously reluctant to sell out of something that might go up meaningfully after he sells. And I absolutely understand that. What do you say to Michael? Firstly, how many stocks is too many? And secondly, should he start trimming his portfolio and investing in his winners? You know, I love this question. This is a brilliant question. It's a fantastic question. Uh, I love it, Michael. And you know, I'll answer this. First, I want to say that there's no I think there can't be one correct answer for this question. Uh, I'll, I'll preface that. And I, so for those Highlander fans, there can be more than one. <laughs> there can be more than one. And, and then, uh, then the other thing I want to say is that I've actually gone through part of this journey. You know, before I became a Motley Fool employee, I was a subscriber uh, for many years. And I had a portfolio with a lot of holdings, uh, probably north of maybe 45, 50 at one point. I have a feeling that I think you could do well with 50. You could possibly even do well with 100. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that people will say that if we've got 100, well, then it's an ETF, <laughs> almost like <laughs> yeah, an ETF. Yeah, that's right. But if it's, you know, but on the other hand, he's in investing across, uh, you know, the US markets, yeah. the Australian market. Yeah. If you add up the total number of companies available to you, it's probably north of 10,000, uh, maybe, or yeah. maybe somewhere on that. Maybe not. There'd be, not there'd be a seven. good 6,000 at least between Australia and six, the US. Yeah, 6, 7,000. Yep. So if you're buying 100 companies yep. out of six, 7,000 companies, mm. you're not buying an ETF. Good point. Good point. And 
you probably, you know, and we're trying to pick some of the best companies we can. Um, you know, I'm, I'm part of many of those services. So, um, you know, Shooting Stars, for example, has, you know, if you're, if you're a member of Shooting Stars 2019, that service has been a phenomenal winner. Like, I mean, you know, it's up like something like 60, 70%. So, uh, you know, cloud is off to a good start. Mm. 5G is off to a good start. So uh, I think you could do substantially well owning a bunch of different companies. And I think Mm. I like the idea of thinking of the uh, overlap recommendations. He's exactly spot on. We have overlaps when the mandate... um, you know, g- given a mandate, we look at stocks, mm. right? And if that stock happens to be another service, we just don't exclude it because it's mm. in the other service, right? We include it because if it's our best idea, it's our best idea for that mandate, yeah. and therefore it shows up. Uh, and in in some sense, it is an indication that well, we have comfort mm-hmm. uh, uh, in recommending it again, and we think it's a good stock to own. So, th- so that or a good company to own. So that's that. Um, in- in terms of managing, so I've got, I I had many. I'm now down to something like 35 odd, from like you know north of 50. Uh, my personal feeling is that as you become more comfortable, as you learn more about individual companies, as you become more comfortable with, I guess volatility, you can afford to concentrate. Uh, but if you are still trying to get a handle of your own investing emotions mm-hmm. and your mm-hmm. own investing uh, ethos and how you feel about it yep. it's okay to actually own many more yeah. i think it's perfectly fine to own many more because you're yeah. following you're basically following recommendation guidance um, the other thing is just one last bit i'll add uh, what i would say is that selling is really hard i mean you know it's scott would probably 100 percent agree with Absolutely. this we, <laughs> We as, as professional stock pickers, we struggle yeah. with selling, yeah. and I have no shame in saying that. It's because it's it's the future is by definition unknowable, right? And we might get you know angry and upset because in a half it didn't work out, or a full year didn't work out, or a quarter didn't work out, a bunch of different things, yeah. you know. And you know, I I, can, I am upset about Webjet, and maybe it is a mistake to sell it because uh, because you need to also think about these decisions in, in conditional terms, right? You sell something and you're going to buy something else. You need to be now right about both. You need to be right about the selling. You need to be right about buying. However, what I find, found is if I have got capital to invest, what I do, this is my strategy. And again, may not be the right strategy, but I'll, I'll just mention my strategy. If I've got uh-huh. capital to invest, I, I look for my best idea that I can put it to uh, mm-hmm. at that point in time with it, with some consideration for allocation. So if I've got something a lot already, yeah. even if it's my best idea, I wouldn't put it there. Uh, and the lot, what is a lot varies from person to person. That's number one. In my mind, I try not to allocate more than six to 7% of my initial capital in a single position. Mm. I would let okay. it ride, but yep. I'd, I would never try to go more than that. Like even if I have the highest to highest conviction, mm-hmm. the maximum, effectively what I'm saying is the maximum I'm willing to lose off my capital is 6% or 5%, mm-hmm. or something like that. That's the sort of rule that I, I imply. Okay. Uh, if I've got capital to invest, I'm never looking to sell something out unless the thesis is guaranteed broken. So, yeah, okay. and if thesis is guaranteed, or, like, or we think is guaranteed broken, we would issue a sell order if, uh, you know, sell trade, if um, if the service is actively managed, as is the case, for example, for uh, 5G, or is the case for our any of our EO and SA and things like that, right? So there's a sell advice that comes through uh, in those cases. So I, again, otherwise I just leave it. I never add to a, pos- to a company that I think is not executing properly. 
So, you know, I would not add because it's down. Uh, I would add if it is down and is executing fine. So if it's misunderstood, I would be happy to add, but I would not add because it's down to average down. Um, so, so effectively what would happen is if I've got 50, 60, 70 odd companies, you would expect that um, the failures so the ones that didn't work out become smaller and smaller portions of your portfolio. Mm-hmm. The ones that are working out, if you do not sell them, they should become bigger, bigger portions of your portfolio. And you'd land up with some sort of, you know, um, I don't know, skewed distribution, mm-hmm. which is going to say that, you know, maybe 30, 40% of your, port- uh, of your holdings account for maybe 60, 70, 80% of your wealth mm-hmm. in, or when I say wealth, I mean the total portfolio yeah, value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that is the way it should work out. I think so. That's my roundabout. I know I didn't answer the question, <laughs> no, it's, it's, uh, but I went around in circles. No, and hopefully, this gives the something. By explaining what you do rather than specifically what you think, um, we, we, we think others should do. I think that's important. Yeah, Michael asked the question about you know, here's what I'm thinking. You're saying, well, if I was in your shoes, here's what I'd do. I think that's that's exactly the right way. Yeah, uh, I'm curious what you think. So, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and answer this a couple of ways because I like to do that, Michael. So first thing is we save a minimum of fifteen to really maximize the benefit of diversification, like the the, the academic benefit, but also to maximize the chances that you won't get freaked out. <laughs> so there's literally a case of you know over the long term the ben- the diversification plays out. Over the short term, fifteen companies just minimizes the impact of volatility. Now you'll still get market risk if you own fifteen companies in in the middle of February uh, this year. You still got whacked no matter what, right? But what it does is 15 companies means if you have owned shares in, say, well, hypothetically, if I own two travel retailers, for example, um, and they fell dramatically, uh, the rest of my portfolio isn't in travel retail. So that diversification helped me weather that storm better than I would have in a different circumstance. If I'd only owned two companies, they're both Webjet and Corporate Travel, as I happen to own, uh, and they'd fallen, I would feel a lot worse, particularly if I'm a young investor, a new investor who's like, oh my goodness, I only own two stocks and look what happened. This investing cape is ridiculous. I'm selling out. Yeah, you know, that would have been terrible. As it turned out, I also owned Kogan, right, which did really, really well. Now, easy for me to say in hindsight, look how great I am. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is that diversification helped me and my portfolio. Now, I'm pretty immune to volatility right now. I've, I've been doing it for long enough. I'm getting old. Um, but if I was a younger investor and you're an investor, I would have been very happy to have my diversified portfolio rather than a concentrated one because I was just getting started and all I bought so far was two companies. So, yes, have at least 15. How many is too many? I think this is tough. What I would say is be a little bit careful about the endowment effect, right? So, you know, you're worried about selling them and what if I sell it and it goes up? That's that's a human instinct and I get it. That's emotionally really tough. We don't ask ourselves, what if I don't buy the company that goes up? <laughs> so, you know, I don't own Afterpay, for example, right? Now, I got to tell you, Afterpay would hurt a lot more if I'd owned it and sold it and, and it went up rather than never buying it at all. The problem is the maths is the same. You know, the $100 of, of Afterpay stock I didn't buy or, or could have bought and then sold would have been the same lost or foregone return, right? Um, if I'd have sold 100 bucks worth of Afterpay shares or just never bought $100 worth of Afterpay shares, the opportunity cost of that is massive. It was up, what, tenfold, Doc, in the last six months? Let's, let's say it's up tenfold, right? Now, that $100 would have been worth 1000 Whether or not I owned them and sold them or never bought them in the first place, I still missed out on making a 10-bagger return. But we don't think that way, right? The human brain says, I used to own that. Damn it, I'm such an idiot. I can't believe I could let go of that. We don't tend to think, gee, you know, why didn't I buy that? We, we sometimes do, but not in the same emotional way. So what we, what, what you say, Michael, what you're feeling is that emotional difference. There's no, there's no mathematical difference. There's no rational logical difference. But the emotional stuff is real. And so again, in thinking about managing your own temperament, how you think about that, how you respond to that, how you deal with that, super different. And so that's really, really important, right? Like I didn't, I've never owned Netflix. I missed out on that entire run. 
Uh, but I feel less bad about that than if I'd sold something that then went up 25%. <laughs> you know, I knew I should have. So, I, 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 Doc, you, you've, you know this. Um, I used to own Coca Cola Amatol shares. Uh, we had them as a recommendation of share advisor. We recommended our members sell, and out of good practice, I followed and sold my own shares, and that was $9, $9.50, something like that. I can't remember exactly. Takeover offer comes six months later, $12.50 the share price is, and I'm like, I said to you, oh, bugger, I'm, you know, typical bloody Scott Phillips like, I've, I've sold out six months before the takeover. I'm a bloody idiot. Look what I've done. Now, I was, I was, I was mostly kidding. I don't actually care that much. I said, I, I'm immune to the, the emotional, well, most of the emotional <laughs> impact of investing. So I was like, oh, bloody hell, just, just kind of laugh it off and keep going. Um, but I didn't say that about the other stocks that go up 30% in the last six months, right? I, I'm not talking about those, but it's Coca-Cola because you still own them. So I get the feeling I know exactly how you feel. If you can separate that emotional response, do that. That's the first thing to do. And then don't worry about whether you used to own them or not or what you owned and sold. Um, so that, that's the first thing. Second thing is think about the your own portfolio diversification. Doc's point's really valid, right? 1,000 out of six, 100 out of 6,000 is not very many. And you don't have to know which ones are going to go really well. Some people are super concentrated investors. I know people with five, six, seven companies in their portfolios and they are just super, super convicted they're going to be right. I think that's a little bit dangerous, quite honestly, but that's their thing to do. Other people are like, you know what? And David Gardner is exactly this, right? So Docs uses the point of 100 companies. David must have 250-odd recommendations. Hmm. And he is the best-performing investor at our company over, over a long period of time. Now, think about that, right? So having that many companies hasn't hurt him. In fact, it's probably helped because overall, he's been right more often than not. And when he's been right, they've gone up. And, you know, it's, it's, a, hard, it's a hard question to try and work out which one of those he should hold or should have bought, should have sold, easy in hindsight. But if you only have half as many recommendations, would he have done quite so well? I'm not sure. I don't know the answer to that, actually, because I don't know whether he would have, you know, which ones he would have uh, culled and which ones he would have kept. Would he have been better, worse, different, the same? Really, really hard to know. So we can't know the answer to that question. I have no problem with you having 100 companies. Um, two more quick thoughts. First one is I, at Share Advisor, have occasionally been encouraged to sell some stocks and to make the list more manageable. I've generally resisted that because I got to be honest with you, and I'm always, I always try and be honest with our listeners. I'm not sure if you'd said to me, pick the top ten stocks they're going to do best over the next five years. At any point in the last eight years of Share Advisor's history, I don't know I would have got the right ten. I'm not entirely sure whether I would have had corporate travel in that list for the full eight years from 2012 to now or 2013 to now, maybe seven years, when it went up four, four or five fold in value. Now. I might have said that originally, then I might have stopped saying that after a year and the shares would have gone from three to six and the journey from six to 30 and then back now 18 is still meaningful, right? I might have I might have stopped having corporate travel in my top 10 at some point and I would have missed out on the rest of that, you know, massive, you know, going from, from three to six is big, so it's a, a double, it's lovely, but the extra five-fold return, I probably would have missed out on because I would have taken it out of my top 10. So I'm not entirely sure that any investor or most investors are actually really particularly good at focusing on just their very, very best ideas and being right more often than not. You certainly raise the risks of making a mistake. So I'm kind of in favor of more rather than less as a general rule. Last thought is this, um, on the flip side, your 50th best idea is probably not where you want your money. If you have stocks, you just have not got enough conviction in. This is back to Doc's original point. I would sell them and, and buy something else. And just accept you're gonna have the occasional moment of regret because, oh man, I sold Netflix. If Netflix is genuinely your 50th best idea, you sh- there's very little reason to hold it just because you originally bought it at some future point. That is pure endowment effect. That is, I own it, so I guess I'll keep it. We don't say that about the stocks I don't own. Well, I don't own it, so I guess I'll buy it. We don't say. Otherwise, we don't own the index. And as Doc said, that's an ETF. So just because you happen to own it doesn't mean you should keep it. Um, now, you might miss a Netflix. You might miss a, I don't know, what's a good example? Something that's crash stock. Um, 
pick a company, you, you might miss an Enron, right? And so you go, okay, well, net, net, where am I better off? I, I wouldn't say sell for the sake of it. So don't look at the number, but look at your conviction. And this is pretty much echoing what Doc said because he's smarter than I am, so I'm just copying his, his answers. Um, you know, if you, if you, like, if you think the company's great and it's going to beat the market, keep it because you never know. If you think the thesis is broken, if you just don't like it anymore, um, again, Coca-Cola Aromatol's done badly for us because uh, of, the, of the, the, the takeover. I didn't see it coming, but I, I still feel pretty good that it wasn't going to beat the market as a standalone business. I didn't expect to take over. Anything could be taken over. You can't keep everything just in case it gets a takeover offer. That's no way to invest or you own the entire market. You always hold it because, hey, Commonwealth Bank could be taken over or you know, Kogan could be taken over or Enron could be taken over. You can't own everything just in case it's taken over. So if, the, if, if you don't believe the market meeting potential is there, sell the stock. If you think the thesis is broken, sell it, but don't sell it just because you've got too many. Super last point. I'll go make that last one, Doc. I've got one more, which is just um, the only thing is to think about how well you can cover the stocks you own. If you've got a full-time job, you don't do this as a job like Doc and I do. If you can't keep your head around 100 companies, chances are you're going to make a mistake or miss something important at some point. So at some level, either find an advisor like us, and not to do an ad, but, or someone else, someone you like and trust and respect who's got a, a long-term track record of market-beating performance and, and, and outsource some of the coverage to them. So if you want to do that, do that and let them help you stand across those stocks. But if you can't keep across them, at some point, you own them only because of an accident of history, and that's not necessarily a great reason to own 100 stocks, I don't think. All right, that was a big, long list, Doc. Not as good as yours, not as concise as yours, but anything that, that raises that uh, you want to talk about? No, I think it, it covered, it's a very thorough answer. <laughs> that means I talk for a long time. Michael, thank you for that question. That does wrap up our mailbag, Doc. Now, on Friday, I talked about EO, and today I'm going to talk about share advisor because, you know, my service decides a bit of love from time to time. Andrew Legal will be very grumpy with me if I don't give us a plug. So like Blonde Horizons from Instagram, if you're a fan of the podcast, if you're a fan of making money, if you're a fan of good quality businesses in the medium and large cap space, if you want to make some money, we hope to do that for you. No guarantees as always. But you can join us at Motley Fool Share Advisor. We have a eight plus year market beating track record. We're almost nine years, mate. Only actually this month. So we're about 15 days away. From, uh, from our ninth birthday. So give me a birthday present. Come on, help me out here. Uh, send, us a, send us some money. No, I'm kidding. Well, I mean, literally send us some money, but do it by joining Motley Fool Share Advisor where hopefully you send us a little bit of money and we make you even more. That's certainly been our success so far. Again, no guarantees, no promises, but we do our level best. We can certainly promise you that. Go to fool.com.au forward slash SA podcast and have a look at the list of current and future buy recommendations released by Andrew and I at that Market beating, long-term flagship service. All right, that's it, mate. We're done for this Sunday. Hope you enjoy the rest of your Sunday. But um, before we do wrap up entirely, I want to remind our listeners to subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast. Yeah, you know what's coming. Through iTunes, your favorite Android podcast app, or say it with me, the Podcast One app. That's right. And if you like what we're doing, please leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell your friends, tattoo it on your body, write it in the sky. Don't graffiti it anyway. Don't do that. Please don't do that. Uh, but, you know, sign running is okay. That goes away. Right in the grass, crop circles. I want to see someone do a crop circle style motley fool on the side of a hill somewhere. Is that too much to ask? Uh, no, go for it. <laughs> Pretty much to ask. If you want to do it, hey, feel free. If you, if you look at Sunday, you've nothing to do. Jump out on the mower or right, grab out some lime or something. Go, you know, make sure it's your hillside, no one else's hillside. If you have a hillside, send us a photo. Twitter, Instagram, email, Facebook. Let us know. Show us your motley fool crop circle. Or don't. And of course, don't forget you can get a dose of Foolish straight to your inbox and some marketing from us by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Triple M.
That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of Foolish Insight. Fool on. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.